I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're joined by returning guest Russ Baker, author of the book Family of Secrets and the editor-in-chief and CEO of the investigative reporting website Who, What, Why. And this time, Russ is joining us to discuss the capital breach that occurred last year on January 6th. The anniversary, of course, just passed us. And in this conversation, we're going to be talking about the relationship between the events of January 6th and two interesting figures, both of whom are right-wing operatives. First, the more well-known Roger Stone, and then a Trump spokesman by the name of Taylor Budowich. Very interesting conversation, particularly in regards to Roger Stone, who, as you'll learn in the conversation to follow, was telling Len Kolodny, the author of the controversial Watergate book, Silent Coup, the removal of a president, that there were plans to cause mass disruptions after the 2016 election. Kalodny, who has since passed away, took that information to Russ Baker, and then Russ Baker was able to confirm that with Roger Stone himself. Later on, Baker would bring this up as an issue in the weeks leading up to January 6th. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now on to the conversation with Russ Baker of who, what, why? Welcome back to Parallax Views, a person who's quickly becoming a, a sort of semi-regular guest on the program, Russ Baker, Editor-in-Chief and CEO of the great website, Who, What, Why? How are you doing tonight? Doing great. Thank you. So, Russ, I wanted to have you back on because you've had a few articles uh, come out on who, what, why, looking back at the uh, incident, the Capitol breach on January 6th of last year. Uh, what are your initial thoughts on that, uh, given that we just had the anniversary? Yeah, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what we're even looking at. And I think our team at who, what, why is using the opportunity of a new year to sort of stretch a little bit and to try to kind of figure out what is the larger picture of what we're looking at? Uh, and I do think that uh, there are a lot of pieces of this that are not fully understood or even acknowledged. And I think part of it is, is trying to understand how it all fits together. There's no question that there is a 
uh, phenomenon sweeping the United States and the world, which is deeply alarming. And it does uh, come with it a sense of foreboding, particularly for people who lived through other uh, bad periods in history, terrors and uh, totalitarian movements and huge uh, displacements. And we, we can imagine if things really turned bad where this would all go. And so here at Hua Wai, we're looking at, we're doing, as you mentioned, a couple of pieces I, I wrote in the last two days, which were uh, looking at some very narrow, very specific things. So we want to look at the granular things that are unfolding, but we also want to look at what might be a bigger picture to explain uh, the uh, the kind of uh, emerging, you know, sort of cataclysm, you might say, which includes everything from alienation and uh, and stratification of uh, viewpoints and intolerance and hate and violence and fear and. Uh, uh, and uh, 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 bad information and propaganda and manipulation. And uh, I think victimization of all kinds of people. I, I actually in some ways see the mob uh, that took the Capitol as, as sort of both kind of not only alarming and kind of animalistic, but also sort of pathetic and in a way uh, needing to be studied because these people uh, simply are, are, are uh, I don't know what you, words I want to use, I don't want to be an apologist, but they are deeply misinformed and misguided and, 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 and wound up with all kinds of falsehoods and fears. And I do think that uh, there are some bigger uh, forces in play. And as you know, uh, JG, um, with my work over the years and with my book, Family of Secrets, I've been deeply interested in these larger uh, forces and factors that shape history. And I think those are at, in play here. I, I don't want to simplify it. And I don't want to say that there's something or somebody pushing, pulling the strings, because I think a lot of this is uh, chaos. And a lot of it is just uh, a multiplicity of factors coming into play. And I'm not sure anybody could control uh, the current situation. But I do think there are a, a number of elements uh, in play that can be identified and uh, uh, people and organizations that can be named and interests identified and studied that can help us understand these things. So that brings us to Roger Stone. He, you actually wrote about Roger Stone in relation to uh, January 6th a year ago, uh, but you've also written a new piece now and I want to talk about that piece and also uh, a figure who's very important to that piece uh, that I, I'm not sure all my listeners are familiar with him, but uh, Len Kolodny figures into your piece on Roger Stone in January 6th. Could you tell my listeners who Len is and how he factors into this story? Yeah, Len uh, is a guy I became quite good friends with over the years. Sadly, he passed away last year and he's much missed. He was a really nice, really honest uh, real kind of citizen with a capital C. Uh, I don't recall all about his background, but he 
came out of the Washington, D.C. area, and as I recall, was involved with a family liquor distributorship. I don't think he had any journalism background, uh, but he got involved with some issues. Uh, something happened to him personally. I don't remember the whole story, but uh, he started looking into something. There were some kind of irregularities or there was some corruption maybe around his liquor business and, and maybe regulators and some corruption there. And he began digging. And some of the best uh, people who end up being um, journalists or authors, or you maybe you could call them investigative journalists, come out of not any kind of classical journalism or formal training, but out of a... Uh, an appetite to get to the bottom of something, maybe a sense of indignation uh, and, and a very strong motivation to, uh, to, to make sure that uh, uh, wrongs are righted and, 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 and the public informed. And so that's really kind of what happened to Len. At some point he, uh, uh, and I don't remember again the whole background, but at some point he somehow had some interactions with Bob Woodward uh, the legend of journalism at the Washington Post. And somehow he became he had a bit of a feud with Bob Woodward in a way, a bit of a feud there. <laughs> he had some kind of a feud. And, and I don't remember the whole detail, but he became interested in Bob and he started looking to Bob. And the result was that Len became an expert on Bob's great legacy, which is Watergate. And uh, Len wrote a book, uh, 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 Silent Coup. Silent Coup, uh, I believe with uh, Robert Gettman. Yeah. Right, right, right. Very, very good book. And basically what Len did was he did this voluminous, he and Gettlin did voluminous research uh, into Watergate, and they discovered some fascinating things about uh, what Watergate was and was not, what it might have actually been. Um, it's a seminal book. I urge folks to read it. That book, along with the second book that was, I think, roughly, I can't, the other one I think came out first, it was called... Uh, 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 secret agenda, and it was by uh, Jim Hogan, H O U G A N, who had been Harper's Magazine's Washington bureau chief. Each of them kind of came at Watergate separately, and each of them discovered pieces of a story that was nothing like the story that Bob Woodward told. It was a completely different story. And in fact, not only was the story that Bob told not right, but Bob ended up figuring in to some extent, particularly in uh, in, in Silent Coup as a player uh, in, in, and, and maybe a participant in the Watergate scenario and not in the way we understood him as this hero who uh, got to the bottom of it and saved democracy, but as something much more problematic. Um, and then I came along when I was working on Family of Secrets, didn't really know much about any of that. And um, I started discovering a third angle to uh, Watergate uh, which ended up fitting very, very nicely with uh, what uh, Jim and what Len and, and Bob did, uh, uh, which was uh, we all saw different slices of a different story, a different history that had never come out. Bob figured in all of our accounts, I think, as a uh, uh, not as a uh, uh, as a uh, uh, figure to be admired at all. Uh, but we saw basically in a nutshell, Len's work was mostly around the military. And uh, a very interesting theory, which I think is more than a theory, I think it's established fact that uh, Richard Nixon uh, had fallen out of favor with uh, key constituencies at the top of the military, and that there was a power struggle going on, which predated Watergate. Uh, Jim worked on some other aspects of Watergate, which tied more into the intelligence community. And then my work, uh, 
was more around the Bush family and its own ties into the military and the intelligence community and its own agenda, uh, which included that of a lot of corporate interests that the Bush family was aligned with that also were deeply uh, upset with Nixon and the very real possibility that Nixon was in fact uh, targeted and eventually set up and essentially overthrown through a so-called silent coup. And I, I just wanted to add to that really briefly because I've, I've heard people talk about a silent coup and I think some people um, have tried to write off uh, Jim's work uh, with Secret Agenda and also silent coup and, and trying to write it off all is uh, an apologia for Nixon. And I don't think that's exactly fair. Uh, right. It's it's not fair. Uh, and in no way uh, does one want to apologize for the things that Nixon did that were atrocious. But uh, being a good journalist, to me, is being open-minded. It's being open to new information and to understanding that figures are complex. One of the real problems that I see in journalism, but in society in general, is that views harden, views form. And we decide, okay, this person is a bad person, this person is a good person, and then we're not interested in hearing anything different. So Bob Woodward, good, Nixon, bad. What if it turns out it's more complicated? What if it turns out there are a lot of shades of gray? What if it turns out that Nixon was bad, but you know somebody else was worse? Uh, how do you begin uh, you know, unhardening the arteries so we're open to these possibilities. It's very, very difficult. And I think one of the great fears that many people have who are in the public limelight is that if the uh, worm turns, uh, boy, you know, there ain't any way to turn it back, you know? And so uh, uh, they just worry that, you know, you know, we see it with the Me Too movement where uh, a whole range of people from people who, like Harvey Weinstein that were, I think, pretty clearly extremely uh, uh, pathological and criminal uh, uh, rightfully uh, were, were toppled. But so were people where the circumstances were much more ambiguous uh, and subject to interpretation. And I think that somebody like Nixon uh, when when that uh, situation turned at a certain point, there was simply no way, no matter how powerful he was, that he could uh, turn it back. Uh, if he knew something, if he wanted to go public and say, listen, OK, I did these bad things. Yes, but they're extenuating circumstances. The reason I the reason I got into the middle of this thing was I was set up. Who's going to even believe him? And this is where it's so important to do the kind of work that all of these people have been doing with their books and why I founded Who, What, Why, because I saw there was really nobody in the media. And I, I would include the uh, mainstream establishment organizations, and I would include the so-called alternative ones, which have their own orthodoxies and their own view. You know, the, you could say the media says, you know, uh, uh, U.S. good, uh, Russia bad. And then there are these uh, American uh, outfits, which I think also have some merit, who say, uh, no, U.S. always bad, <laughs> uh, uh, Russia good. I mean, I don't think either of those is right. And I think there's a need an urgent, urgent need in this society for honest brokers who are willing to just reassess and dig deeper. And I, I will just add to that as well. I mean, I think with uh, your book, Silent Coup, and also Secret Agenda, I think the key for me has always been that there really is these uh, internecine conflicts going on between uh, different elements and factions within DC. And I think regardless how one comes to view Watergate, there always is that internecine sort of warfare going on between different elements of Washington, D.C. life. 
Uh, in regards to Roger Stone and your articles on Stone in January 6th, what's the relation there between Len Kolodny and uh, Roger Stone and the information you got about Roger Stone in relation to January 6th? Yeah, um, so somehow Len got to know Roger. I mean, I also got to know Roger over the years. I don't think either Len or I uh, share practically any views with Roger on almost anything. But, you know, strangely, you can uh, talk to people you don't agree with. And, uh, you know, I know people who said, my God, he's such a horrific person. You should never even speak to him. Uh, you know, I get that. But, you know, you can't really function. Uh, in this society, you can't function as a journalist if you don't keep the uh, uh, the channels open. I mean, uh, I may not uh, respect or agree with anything Marjorie Taylor Greene says, but I mean, if she is going to call me, I might want to hear what why she's calling me, you know. And so, uh, Roger, for all the things you want to say about him uh, on a personal level, I was able to uh, get to know him and meet with him a number of times and he became interested in my work and i was pretty clear why it was pretty clear why he was interested in in len's work because both family of secrets and silent coup provided something of a you could call it a reprieve to richard nixon and of course roger uh got his start with richard nixon and he was such a huge fan that as you may know he has that giant tattoo of richard nixon on his back uh, there's a great documentary, and you can see that there. But Roger, get me was Roger very, Stone, I think, was the documentary. It's called "Get Me Roger Stone." Roger was very, very pleased to note that us, you know, pinkos uh, uh, had discovered some uh, 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 complex factors uh, in the downfall of Richard Nixon that, that, to his mind, sort of partially redeemed him, at least. And so he was interested in what we did. He became interested also in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and then reading, as I understand it, I don't want to take too much credit here, but as I understand it, Roger became interested, read Family of Secrets and so on, became interested in all these things, the Kennedy assassination, the Bush family. Uh, he didn't like the Bushes. That was another thing that he, his, his wing of republicanism didn't like the Bushes, didn't trust them and thought they were uh, a, a malign factor there. Uh, and so he, for his own reasons, uh, became interested in all of these things. And he got to know me and he got to know Len separately. And so fast forward to uh, 2020, and it's, uh, I want to say it's October. And Len, again, who, who I've known for years, approaches me, he says, did, did I ever tell you what Roger Stone told me back in 2016? And I was like, I don't know. And I was so busy. I was only half listening. But he said, yeah, you know, Roger was telling me that, uh, that they were planning to take some kind of action to block uh, uh, the, the, the election uh, or the certification of the election if it didn't go their way. And, you know, he was telling me this in October of 2020. So it didn't really mean a lot to me, to be honest. Uh, but but I, he told me it a few times and I kept thinking about it. And, and as we got close to election day and Donald Trump started ringing that bell that if we lose, it's because we've been cheated. I started thinking about that. I started thinking about what Len had said and that, that Roger had told him. And I thought, I better go back and revisit this. So I, I got on the horn with, with Len. And Len said, you know, you can use this. Um, for whatever reason, didn't want me to use his name in my article. But he told me and he, he said I could go to Roger. And so I went to Roger. Roger, in his own uh, way, uh, essentially confirmed that he had told Len uh, in 2016, uh, before the election, they had been in 
been together at a conference and sat and chatted. And he had told Lynn that uh, if Trump lost in 2016, which he was almost certain he would lose, right? That one, he was almost certainly going to lose because Hillary Clinton was supposedly way ahead. And in a shocker, he won. But if he, if he had lost, they were ready to, according to Roger, block bridges and tunnels and try to grind American uh, society uh, and, and uh, industry and everything else to a halt. And uh, so uh, here we were in 2020, Trump was uh, raising the drumbeat. And I suddenly I got these chills and I thought, God, I, I, I wonder, here we are again in a very close situation. And now he has power and he wants to do, he seems to be willing to do anything to hang on to it. What if he really does that this time? And I said, I think we need to let people know. And so I wrote an article that we published uh, at Huawei on election day. 2020 saying, hey, we need to pay attention to this. Uh, and I was sort of so panicked about this. I thought, how do we get this out there? Uh, it's very hard to know how to spread the word of something. And, and, and we published it. I think we sent it out as widely as we could. And I, I actually sent it to a thing called CNN uh, Reli uh, Reliable Sources, which is a, a show and a newsletter about media. And sometimes they report and pick up on stories. The media, I sent it out to them. I sent it out to Drudge, who, although Republican, was very down on Trump. And I thought maybe these people will spread the word. Well, they didn't. There wasn't a, there wasn't a peep. There was no response. And so, as we, we know, we, we saw Election Day came and then uh, weeks of uncertainty and haggling and the exhaustion we all felt. And then we get to January, it comes a certification. And there happens not bridges and tunnels, but something else in, in Washington. And of course, Roger shows up in that scenario. You know, he's got the uh, the Proud Boys and the, the other group, you know, and one of them provides a private security force to him. And, you know, so what was his involvement there? I don't know. I mean, I think the uh, the House committee, again, is trying to find out. And I'm not trying to say that Roger did anything untoward because I don't know. But I, I think he was at least honest enough to say that he liked this idea of civil disobedience. Um, and very importantly, as I point out in my new article, uh, he was one of the authors in back all the way back in 2000, another cliffhanger election with Bush v. Gore, uh, where uh, the whole future of America and the world probably changed because the vote counting was halted. And why was it halted? Because they, they had the so-called Brooks Brothers riot that some of your younger listeners probably haven't heard of, uh, but they had gone down to Florida and found a way to stop the vote counting. And so the count was, the vote was never recounted. And uh, uh, a slight margin uh, that, that Bush had of literally a few hundred votes to affect the future of the United States presidency of the United States and of the world, which then factored into everything, including the war with Iraq and everything else that changed probably our lives forever, uh, was all uh, determined by this thing that Roger and his team were involved in. So when when Roger says we were planning something in 2016, and I see him, you know, again advising Trump and being involved with these groups, I say we should have paid attention to this stuff. And even to this day, we haven't acknowledged there this past and that this past is prologue to where we are currently. And I was going to add, it sounds like uh, Len Kalodney himself was probably a little bit worried when he heard Stone saying these things. Well, Len absolutely was, and and you know uh, I miss him dearly, but you know posthum posthumously, I want to credit him for caring and for spotting something that we needed to be concerned about because I wouldn't be here talking about it without Len. So I guess the issue with Roger Stone, I feel that 
maybe maybe the reason that um, when we talk about stone, it can fall on deaf ears. I know you mentioned you tried to get the word out uh, to CNN reliable sources and Drudge Report. Do you think that Stone has sort of cultivated this image as, I, I don't know, he comes off as, as uh, trying to play the rogue in his public persona. And I think he's done that so much that, you know, it's almost like I think a lot of people treat him as uh, a, a sort of cartoonish character um, when he's really serious about a lot of what he does. And, uh, you know, he has a big playbook. He's very serious. And Roger is a, is a master of the PR game. And, you know, kind of following the footsteps of uh, the novelist Tom Wolfe, you know, uh, affecting a particular garb and a hat and a this and a that. I mean, um, you know, you look at me, I'm sitting here with a button down shirt and a black sweater. It's not very uh, uh, sexy. And I, you know, I don't care about clothing and I think you don't care either, JG, but you know, that's, that's a, that's a decision we make. Uh, but sometimes I dress up a little bit, you know, not very often, but a few times in my career, a little, a little kind of dandyish, you know, and, and, you know, it gets an impact. People react to it. And uh, I think he has cultivated the visuals uh, consciously, and I think that he has cultivated the outrage machine consciously. I mean, he uh, and Donald Trump go way back. Donald Trump is another one, you know, with the swept back bouffant and uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the 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 drama and the histrionics and the they're both from the uh, uh, Roy Cohn school of always be on the offensive, uh, don't apologize for anything and just keep you know hitting hard uh, and. Um, you know, so I, I understand that some people might dismiss him, but I think you dismiss Roger at his peril. I think uh, Roger is uh, uh, is a serious guy, and I think Roger believes in whatever Roger believes. I do think Roger has an ideology. I mean, I also think these people were willing to absolutely be paid by the highest bidder. You know, he and his old buddy Manafort and all of them were only too happy to take brutal dictators as clients, but probably because they didn't care. You know, that's not, you know, humanitarianism and human rights are not on their list of priorities. And they like a tough leader and a strong leader. And they think sometimes that's the only way that you can have order. I'm not defending it, but it's an ideology. Roger and a lot of them go back to, you know, Barry Goldwater and, you know, a certain worldview that many of us don't share. But I don't think we can dismiss it as uh, as 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 phony or ridiculous. It's a it's a it's a philosophy. Yeah, and I think it's very telling. He's always seemed to land on his feet despite being at the center of controversy. And I, I think, you know, uh, he's sort of a self-admitted dirty trickster and also uh, someone who has friends in high places a lot of times. And that's maybe helped him land on his feet. Yeah, but remember, in, in calling himself a, or a, a embracing dirty trickster is branding. And if he doesn't have that, why would anybody even care what he has to say? Everybody else is just a political consultant. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist, Muhammad. As time passes, Dill slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community. 
and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes, and Noble. Thank you. So then you also had a second article, and I, I don't know if you want to discuss this for a little bit, but uh, the second article you wrote about January 6th uh, is titled, Did Trump Spokesman Hide Assets on January 6th? And I believe this article has to do with another Republican operative, uh, Taylor Budowich. Uh, could you tell my listeners a little bit about who Taylor Budowich is? Yeah, um, I uh, will admit to having never even heard of him until recently, but um, uh I was studying the uh, the uh, January 6th select committee in the House and its work. I was beginning to try to get up to speed on that. We're all pretty busy. I, I bet both, most of us aren't following that closely, what they've been doing, although maybe awaiting the televised hearings. Uh, but in any case, uh, uh, they have you know issued a whole bunch of um, subpoenas and uh, uh, and uh, uh, for documents and uh, uh, for uh, people to come in and, and testify, testify in depositions. Uh, and uh, I had noticed that uh, there were all these lawsuits being filed against the committee by people who don't want to turn things over, don't want to testify. And I was just fascinated by that. That's kind of how I do my journalist. I notice a pattern and I don't see it really being covered as a pattern. I started looking into that. And while I was looking into that, I began looking at some of the suits and I noticed one of the suits was by a guy named Taylor Budowich. And who's he? Well, he's listed as a spokesman for Donald Trump. And I thought, well, my God, Donald Trump, you know, uh, one thing I really admire about Trump is he's like stone. He just keeps landing on his feet. I mean, he must have what turnover he has, you know, it's just like, he can't keep anybody, but he, he keeps finding people like they got a must have a very active HR department, you know, it's always somebody new. And uh, they, they find him. there's always somebody who's willing to do that. And so who is it? He's a young, youngish guy, I think he's 32 looks younger, um, who uh, is his one of is his spokesman or one of his spokesmen while he's a president in exile. Um, and, and so this guy is being subpoenaed by the committee. I thought, well, what's this about? They wanted to know what his role was in the, uh, in the creation of the uh, January 6 events because they knew that he'd been involved with the uh, Stop the Steal rally. And uh, they're trying to track the whole thing, the funding, uh, and the logistics of that rally. 
And, you know, what did those people know or expect to happen as a result of the rally, right? They're trying to figure out if this is connected to the ultimate uh, chaos and violence. Um, and so um, I was interested in him and trying to learn more about him. And I noticed there was very little written about him. If you Google him, there's almost nothing out there. Um, he, he had filed this lawsuit, and somebody mentioned an article in passing that he, he had filed this lawsuit along with a co-plaintiff, and it was a name of an entity, a, a for-profit entity. And as what I do, I'm an investigative reporter, so I immediately went to the corp incorporation records in the state where it was incorporated, California, and I looked up this, the entity. This is Conservative Strategies Incorporated, right? Yeah, it's a nothing. It's a little paper, something, but... I, I looked at it and I was like, what is this? There's almost nothing here. You know, he's the uh, officer and the president and the board member and whatever. It's like a lot of things, you know, like a like a shell corporation or something. And I wanted to know more about it. But while I was looking at it, I was struck by the fact that what date was it incorporated? It was incorporated January 6, uh, 2021. And I was like, holy cow. So this guy is being investigated by the House for his activities on January 6th. And on January 6th, back in California, where he's from, he's incorporating this entity. And I was like, I was just thinking about that. If, if I'm working with the uh, president of the United States, which Trump still was, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm uh, trying to engineer this rally to basically keep him in office and to nullify the election. I'm pretty damn busy, you know. Uh, and then as the day unfolds and and this melee and this just craziness takes on, uh, the last thing I'm doing is incorporating a company anywhere, uh, uh, and particularly back in his hometown of California. So I thought, well, what is this about, and why is this enterprise, his co-plaintiff? trying to block the House committee from obtaining his financial records and his further testimony, because he had turned over some stuff and he had uh, uh, provided a deposition, but he, he didn't want to get tell them anymore. He didn't want to say anymore. And he was actually suing his bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, telling him, you better not turn over any more records. So I thought there's something going on here. And this article, J.G., that you mentioned at our website, who, what, why, uh, org is simply, uh, and it appeared yesterday actually, is simply us saying, what the heck is this about? Uh, uh, we're bringing this to your attention and this needs some further digging. And we'd like to know if the committee has looked at the timing of the creation of this entity. And is this some kind of foreknowledge of something? Is this some kind of effort to protect his assets because he sees where this is going and that everything's going south? Uh, what is this about? And of course, we don't know the answer, but uh, it's, it's good enough sometimes, JG, just to do what I call investigative thinking or investigative questioning. You don't have to know the answers to publish something, to raise these kinds of questions. And I was going to say, your article does mention that there are attempts to look into uh, the funding for the January 6th rally, particularly uh, ProPublica reported in October that as much as $3 million may have been raised from parties unknown, known and unknown, including an heiress to the public's uh, supermarket chain. So there, there is a, a money trail that's very real to uh, the events of January 6th. Well, they're pursuing all this. And of course, I have no idea. And just to say that um, uh, innocent until proven guilty, I am making no allegations of any kind about Budowicz. Uh I'm simply pointing out that he was involved with this stuff, uh, that he was a, a we, we do know that he was a player uh, in uh, uh, the planning and, and I guess the fundraising and certainly trying to make this rally a success. He was involved with um, 
uh, raising money and hiring uh, robocallers to turn out a big crowd, uh, uh, chartering buses to bring people out. So they were they were directly involved in building that crowd that then let, you know, and then of course that crowd was exhorted by all these speakers, including Trump to, uh, to you know, whatever language that was, take back the country, go to the, go to the Capitol and, you know, as Giuliani said, whatever it is, you know, bring the fight to them, you know, they were, you know, uh, pretty explicit in, if not explicit, you know, formally asking them to storm the Capitol to working people up and, and suggesting very strongly to them that um, they needed to show no fear and they needed to be very, very aggressive with these people that they were labeling as criminals who were otherwise about to certify the election. So I think understanding the funding and the role of all these people, and I think, you know, Budowicz and, uh, you know, I don't know if he gets paid, I assume he does, you know, was he getting paid to, uh, in whatever capacity he was in on January 6th or in the weeks before that, I assume he was getting paid. And was that entity uh, uh, for the purpose of uh, securing the funds in a corporation so it's not touchable? Or was it to make it difficult even to investigate this? Any of those things are possible, although I, I'm making no uh, statements uh, as to any kind of culpability. So before we wrap up here, I also wanted to get your thoughts on uh, just generally the, the media coverage, both mainstream and alternative media, uh, and the way they've covered January 6th. Because I think uh, sometimes the mainstream media hasn't given uh, you know the, the broader picture at times, or, or getting into some of those granular details even. I, I, I think sometimes we uh, miss some of the key details. And I think with alternative media, I, I've actually seen a, a few people uh, in alternative media referencing this figure of, of Darren J. Beatty uh, from Revolver News, who's really pushing this idea that, uh, oh, it was an inside job. And he, he, I mean, he's a Trump appointee. So I, I would think that people would be much more uh, critical of that and say, well, maybe Beatty has a reason for saying this. And I, I feel like there's a lack of discernment at times in alternative media when it comes to some of these figures that push a certain line. Absolutely, and I think one of the problems uh, with also with left media is that some of them, and we know which entities these are, well, I think they're quite uh, fearless and uh, relentless in challenging the American establishment. They're not always right. And so, well, you know, once they decided that, uh, you know, as, as I've written in my book, all the terrible things that the American establishment has done over the years, once that becomes their default position, then the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so if there are claims about Vladimir Putin in Russia, no, those claims are ridiculous. I think, you know, whether it's Greenwald or Gray Zone or any of those, and I respect them, certainly, uh, but I don't fully agree with them. I think there's a reflexive tendency to say, I don't even want to look into this stuff. I don't want to hear about it. There's no evidence. Well, you know, I, I pride myself on being very open-minded to new information, as I said earlier in the show. And I think that uh, there's been a lack of that. And so we, the, what we see, what you're bringing up is these strange bedfellows. You see people who uh, don't trust the establishment, uh, wonder if there's, you know, the hidden hand of uh, the so-called deep state, you know, the CIA and what have you, and trying to oust Trump. Uh, I'm sure they didn't like, a lot of them didn't like Trump and probably wanted him out and 
you know, what did they do? I don't know what they did, but did they do a lot or did they do a little or, 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 or surprisingly little? Uh, but uh, there, I think there was a tendency to kind of rally, even among people who have nothing in common with Trump or his supporters, rally behind him with this idea that, uh, yeah, let's all get together and let's go after the deep state. And again, Roger Stone is a perfectly ex perfect example of that, that we, Roger and Alain Kalodny, although they have completely different divergent worldviews, can agree on uh, the Kennedy assassination, that there needs to be more investigation, what really happened, the evidence that, 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 that uh, it was simplified and covered up. And to your point about the media, I think the mainstream media really doesn't have any room for subtlety. And so they tend to uh, paint with a very wide brush uh, and anything you say that's not exactly like the way that they're saying it, you get attacked. They call you a conspiracy theorist. They try to insult you or shut you out uh, just because not in so much that they're bad people, but that they don't see any way to keep their jobs, do their job and explain things with a lot of nuance. So. Uh, Nixon bad, therefore Watergate bad, therefore uh, Nixon involved, therefore uh, 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 Woodward and Bernstein heroes, and, and that's it. It's a, it's a kind of a comic book rendering of history. And I think the media generally did a, a, a reasonably good job uh, of covering January 6th as well as they could in terms of people who took their lives in their own hands. Uh, this fellow, the photographer from the LA Times, I don't know if you've seen that video of his, he shot from a head cam. I mean, really outstanding footage very, very gutsy. Um, and, you know, and I think it's right to, to point out how dangerous this all is and to decry it and the threats to democracy that the, uh, you know, the anchors on CNN and MSNBC are doing. I agree with them on all that, but I, what I don't see uh, is enough nuance, enough historical perspective of what's behind this and how we got where we are. And I would just add to that, I, I guess my basic point that I hope listeners come away from when we talk about uh, both the mainstream and the alternative media coverage is just that uh, we need to use more discernment. You know, I, I mentioned uh, Darren Beatty making uh, his sort of claims that are in line with uh, that Tucker Carlson documentary, uh, Patriot Purge. And yet this is a person uh, who on the day of January 6th was tweeting as the Capitol breach was happening uh, that Black Lives Matter activists need to take a knee and learn their place. I mean, he has very much an agenda and I think people should be aware of that, just like they should be aware of uh, Roger Stone if they're if they're working with him, because I think uh, Roger has tried to get into left media spaces at time. And, I, you know, people can get involved in different spaces, but we should always be aware of what people's agendas are. That's extremely well put. And I think that's a perfect way to think about uh, the new year. And as we go about uh, trying to make the right decisions for ourselves and for our country and our world, that we all, always ought to keep in mind, do people have an agenda or are these the honest brokers that we need to kind of lead us forward? And with that being said, I wanna thank you, Russ Baker, for coming back on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work and uh, the work of the other great writers at Who, What, Why? And is there anything uh, else on Who, What, Why that you would recommend my listeners uh, read? Yeah, I don't want to be touting my own stuff. I mean, there's a lot of good things at Hawaii, 99% uh, of which is not written by me. We have excellent podcasts. We have some very, very good recent ones uh, with unusual viewpoints. Uh, there was something about wokeness, uh, which, you know, some people think we're a 
you know, liberal or liberal left or progressive website, but I don't know if you'd see that there, you know, and it was very interesting uh, by a very interesting um, uh, African-American academic who himself considered himself a liberal, but was was questioning the banding about the, the term a racist. Uh, so, you know, we're very open. Uh, I think those things, I think, are uh, a lot of our, our articles recently. And then also I would take a look at our editorial cartoons, which are often a zone where people can say things pithily and, and dynamically uh, and, and succinctly in a way that you can't uh, always with a lot of words. So a lot of good things there. Um, and, uh, you know, you can follow uh, Who, What, Why on Twitter and Facebook, uh, sign up for a mailing list. Uh, I have my own Twitter and Facebook. Uh, Twitter is Real Russ Baker. Uh, I can't remember what the Facebook is, but you can find me. Uh, and then I also write books. And I wrote a book called Family of Secrets. came out years ago, but it seems to have a new wind in its sails. And many, many people just discovering it about uh, lots of interesting things that are relevant today. Working on a new book will be out in a few years. Thank you again, Russ Baker, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Russ Baker of Who, What, Why on the January 6th Capitol breach of last year. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's everything from a $1 tier to a $100 tier with a $5, $10, and $15 tier in between. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout, which means it's producer's credit shoutout time to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, along with a few of our great sponsors that help to keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.